Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. guys and welcome to the moms and murder podcast a true crime podcast featuring myself mandy and my dear friend melissa hi melissa hi mandy how are you i'm doing wonderful the sun is Good. shining the birds are chirping it's getting dark later and later every day and i love it i'm here for it that's awesome my son thinks <laughs> that the i'm like i'm living here too my son thinks that um because spring and summertime have like longer days that the hours are longer so we had to pick his sister up from something today and he was i was like he's like no it's only been five minutes i'm like buddy it's been an hour and a half he's like no in spring and summer the days are longer and i'm like oh no that's not that's not how this works at all (laughs) i wish i totally wish (laughs) i know if i had like a solid 10 more hours a day i would be so caught up in all the television i want to (laughs) watch I was going to say, I would still find a way to waste them all. Absolutely. So real quick weather report we haven't done it in a while. People have asked. The people are asking. And by that, I think like one Believe person. Believe it or not, we're like honorary meteorologists for the state of Florida. Truly. We get more emails today about how like our weather, how the weather is here than like corrections on things we say wrong. And we still say a lot of things wrong. So it's right. wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how we got to this point, but yes. Mandy, what's the weather been like here in Florida? Absolutely incredible. Just beautiful. This is mostly us just rubbing it in, I think. It Um, is. It is. Yeah. But it really is too good to not talk about because I 
been saying for like the last two weeks, really, that this is just my favorite time of year. This is the most perfect weather. It's just been beautiful. It's been sunny, 75, breezy, just amazing every single day of the week. (laughs) Every day. And you just find yourself, my entire neighborhood looks like the walking dead because it's just people walking everywhere, nowhere to go, just walking around because it's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's super fun. So sorry, haters. Haters going to hate. Don't be jealous. And they are going to hate because there's a few places who got like feet of snow (laughs) within the last week. I know. My mom was actually one of them. She um, sent me a picture, had texted me a picture of her backyard and the snow was falling. And she said that they were saying that they could get up to a foot of snow that day. And she's in upstate New York. So she was not happy. She sent me a bunch of little mad face emojis (laughs) um, because they're just so over the snow. And I did not tell her that it was currently – very warm and sunny and beautiful in Florida, but mm-hmm. um, she probably she knows. already knows she that. Knows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So with as popular as movies like Don't Say a Word and All the Money in the World are, it's pretty clear that people are pretty fascinated with the topic of kidnapping and ransom. Even in the true crime world, there are a number of captivating real cases where a ransom has been involved. We actually covered one um, a little bit earlier in the year on the podcast, or maybe it was late last year. I'm not exactly sure when. Time but we has talked. no meaning anymore. <laughs> it does. I know. Um, but it was the story of John Paul Getty III. But another big ransom case that comes to mind is, of course, the John Benet Ramsey story, which people still analyze and deep dive into to this day. In the movies, ransom stories generally end with the bad guy either getting what they want and releasing their captive, or an action-packed series of events leads to the capture or the demise of the bad guy while the victim goes free. But not all ransom cases are created equal, nor do they all have a happy outcome. It was around 4 o'clock on the afternoon of June 16, 1988, when Harry Weiner was on shift at his job at the bank when he was notified that someone by the name of Bill Johnson was on the phone for him. Harry went to take the call, but was stopped in his tracks when he heard a recording of his wife's voice playing over the phone. Sally Weiner was recorded stating that she had been kidnapped and was being held at gunpoint in fear for her life. She begged her husband, Harry, to comply with the kidnapper's demands and the instructions. The motive was simple. The kidnapper wanted ransom money, and if he didn't get it, he threatened to murder Sally. In the recorded message that was being played for Harry, Sally told him to go outside into the bank parking lot and look for a blue bag with further instructions inside. So Harry went outside and found the bag with a ransom note in it. This note had been typed and printed out, which was kind of a big deal at this time. As I said, it was in 1988, and it contained instructions for Harry, but the details were mostly vague. The note began, quote, follow our instructions exactly or your family will die. And it continued on to say, if you do not follow our orders, we will kill her and we will not be quick to kill her. She will die a slow, painful and horrible death. We will take days to torture her, and we will finish by cutting her into many pieces, and you'll never find enough to bury. So if you want your wife to live, do exactly as we say. End quote. The note contained additional instructions for Harry to pick up two walkie-talkies from a nearby radio shack. These walkie-talkies would be there under Harry's name waiting for pickup. Does Radio Shack still exist at some point, they changed its name to The Shack, but I don't know if The Shack is still oh. in in business. 
I don't know. Maybe it's like Comp USA. Uh, I don't know. If you know just said The Shack to me, I would immediately think Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, I would think the book The Shack. So I would not, it's funny how yeah, our brains work. I wouldn't think of Radio Shack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so after he picked up these radios, he was supposed to set them to a specific frequency. And one of them was going to have the send button taped down so that the kidnappers could hear Harry constantly. The other radio was for the kidnapper to use to relay further instructions to Harry. After picking up these walkie-talkies, Harry was supposed to go back to the bank where he worked and fill the blue bag with money. But interestingly, there was no specific amount of money that was being demanded. Harry was simply supposed to take 90% of the cash that was stored at the bank, starting with 100s, then 50s, then 20s, and then 10s. That's so interesting to me. I don't feel like I've ever heard of a kidnapping and ransom case where somebody where they're didn't just specifically like, ask for yeah. a number. Yeah, because hmm. how are they going to know how much money the bank has in cash there? Yeah. You could just say, I took 90% of it, and like, how would they even Yeah, know? I know. That's a really weird thing to quantify. <laughs> yeah. So once Harry had the money in hand, he was supposed to drive 10 miles out of town to a railroad underpass, where radio instructions would then be sent to him. Harry was supposed to be at the underpass by 9 p.m. that night. The note ended with, we will be watching you all the time. Remember, if you are followed or you don't follow our instructions, your wife will start suffering and dying. Call the cops or screw with us and all will die. Harry and his wife Sally had been happily married for about 13 years and had two children at this time. They had a son and a daughter who were in about the fifth grade and the first grade respectively. Sally was a loving and very devoted mom and wife, and Harry had been a longtime employee of Penn Bank, and in 1987, the family moved from Erie to Cory, Pennsylvania, so that Harry could manage the Penn Bank branch in the Cory Plaza there. The family began attending church at the First Presbyterian and quickly settled into a new life there. Sally was quiet and kept to herself, but she was active in the PTA, and Harry was a pillar of the community, involved in many charitable causes, including leading a United Way campaign in 1987. So could Harry's public persona and his position at the bank have led to the kidnapping and ransoming of his wife? Regardless of the reason, when Harry got that chilling call at work on June 17th, he knew he was going to do whatever it took to make sure his wife was safe. Despite the fact that the ransom note explicitly said not to call the authorities, Harry immediately got right on the phone with the vice president of Penn Bank, the bank security office, local and state police, and the FBI. I don't blame him. Yeah, he didn't waste any – he, like, didn't, wasn't playing around. He no. was like, yeah, okay, forget that. I definitely am in over my head and need help here. Exactly. So he told them what happened and said he really had no idea who would do this. He and Sally had no enemies, and there was nothing that really made sense about any of this. But there was one possible lead. The night before the kidnapping, Sally told Harry about a phone call she'd received from someone claiming to be with the Erie office of U.S. Representative Thomas Ridge. The man said that the representative wanted to throw a luncheon where he would present Harry with a civic award for his involvement in the community. He wanted to meet with Sally on the 17th to discuss these plans in person, but he told her not to tell Harry because this whole thing was going to be a surprise. Sally, however, did not keep this meeting a secret from Harry. She was far too excited and had to share it with him. Again, first rule of marriage. Whatever you tell me, you tell my husband. It's it, it's just like a, <laughs> a communication drip. I just hear it and I will share it with him. It just 
you you yes, can't really exactly. hide it, right? That's like the whole right. privilege of being married. Even in right. court, you don't have to testify against each other. <laughs> it's magical. <Right. laughs> she said she was going to be meeting this person at around one o'clock on the 17th in the parking lot of the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, which was right next door to the plaza where Harry's bank was. That parking lot is the last place that Sally was seen alive. And her car was even still parked there whenever Harry got the call at 4 p.m. that afternoon. So after hearing all of this, all of the various law enforcement agencies and authorities talked with one another and they came up with a plan. Harry would follow the directions in the ransom note, deliver the money, and get Sally back safely. Local Erie Banks had a plan in place for things like this, and they had all agreed to come together to meet this cash ransom demand in order to ensure the safety of the potential victim. So the hardest part of the ransom, securing the funds, was really taken care of in this place. Like if it wasn't a bank involved in this situation or somebody working at a bank, obviously this would be much more difficult. Right. And I'm sure there'd be an actual number involved um, in that case. All Harry had to do was follow the directions and be at the underpass outside of town by 9 p.m. So that's exactly what he did. He followed all the directions, except that one about not contacting the police, and he arrived at the underpass just before 9 p.m. When Harry got there, he waited for instruction to come through on his walkie-talkie. And then he waited and waited and waited some more until two hours had passed and no one had contacted him. Harry never received any other communication from the kidnapper. The following day, on June 18th, investigators decided to go public about Sally's kidnapping. They immediately released everything there was to know about this case. The phone call, the recording, the ransom, the whole story about how Harry had followed the instructions but hadn't received any further communication from the kidnapper. And police were out there asking the public to report any tips, anything suspicious, sightings, whatever. The president of Penn Bank actually told the media that the bank was going to fully cooperate with the kidnapper's demands and said that money can be replaced, but Sally's life could not. He also weighed in on his opinion about the kidnapping, stating, quote, In one way, this looks to be well-organized, and in another way, it looks amateurish. This is a tiny little branch office in a tiny little community, so it's hard to figure out why this has all taken place, end quote. It's wild to me that the police went on to give all the information up, and then the owner of the bank is like, yeah, we'll pay whatever, whatever. We yeah. just want her back, which I, I get it, but you're the one who actually has like is in charge of these funds. So like, it's not me saying I'll give whatever to get my spouse back. It's the right. owner of the bank being like, yeah, I got all the money. What do you want? It's, I don't feel like that would happen today. Do you? No, I kind of feel like there's a few things in this story that I don't think would happen today. I don't know that the police would have just immediately gone and said every little detail about the kidnapping, Yeah, you know, on to the media right away. And I don't know. I, it, a lot of things just seem like very 1980s to me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she said with judgment in her voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sadly, no amount of cooperation would be enough. In the early morning hours of June 19th, a local farmer found Sally's body in a clearing near a gas well in an otherwise wooded area of his property about five miles outside of Quarry. Sally was still dressed in the last clothes that she was seen in, but her purse wasn't with her. She had been shot one time at close range in the back of the head, but had no other wounds, bruises, or marks on her body. A pathologist determined that Sally died at some point between midnight on June 17th and 2 p.m. on June 18th. 
That same pathologist also believed that it was possible that Sally's brainstem wasn't completely destroyed by the gunshot and that she may have lingered in a coma before dying. But he did say he couldn't be sure if this happened, and if it did, she would have most likely been unconscious and not in any pain. A forensic entomologist analyzed the insect activity on Sally's body and determined that Sally had actually died earlier than the pathologist thought. They believe that she died between 5 and 8 p.m. on June the 17th, which would have been within hours of the kidnapping and before the 9 p.m. deadline that Harry was given. So based on what, you know, this insect activity is showing, they're saying Sally had already been shot before Mm. Harry even had a chance to complete the instructions and the ransom note. To start the investigation, authorities requested a list of people who had applied for and been denied loans at the quarry branch of Penn Bank where Harry worked. One of the names on this list stood out because it was someone that had a connection to the Wieners. David Kopenheffer and his wife Patricia had recently applied for two different business loans totaling $25,000. One of the loans they applied for was to expand a bookstore that just so happened to be in the same plaza as the bank, and the other loan that they applied for was to open a fast food franchise. The Kopenheffers were denied these loans. It was also learned that David Kopenheffer had attempted to cash a very big check at this bank. It was about $60,000 to be exact, and this was for an insurance payout on a house fire. But the record showed that Harry had refused to cash the check because it was from out of state. But what made the Copenhaver stand out the most was that they had once attended the same church as Harry and Sally. When the Wieners first moved to Quarry and began attending First Presbyterian, they met David and Patricia there, and both couples even attended a program called Marriage Encounter Together, which was a program designed to make a good marriage even better. Eventually, Harry and Sally decided that First Presbyterian wasn't the church for them, and they moved on to Quarry Missionary Alliance, which was the same church where Sally met up with this mystery person who kidnapped and shot her. Because of all of these things and the connection between the two couples, investigators were compelled to dig deeper into the Copenheffers. And there was a lot to learn. And we're going to talk about all of it after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I'm always on the hunt to find a great omega-3 supplement. And my search is finally over, thanks to Iwi. Iwi is different than those other guys because their secret is algae. In fact, their proprietary form of algae leads to 50% more absorption than fish, krill, and other algae oils, which gives them the world's highest absorption of any source of omega-3. One of my biggest hangups with omega-3 has been the nasty fish burps after. You know the ones. But with Iwi, that's kiwi without the K, I'm skipping the middle fish and its patented formula goes straight to my bloodstream, which means there is more absorption and more health benefits for me. Once you hit your 30s, you have to start thinking about fun things like your car's airbag warranty or your bad VLDL cholesterol. So I feel great knowing that in a clinical study, Iwi cholesterol helped reduce bad VLDL cholesterol by 25% on average in just three months' time, which is incredible. And no matter how old or young you are, if you're like us and are looking to live a healthier lifestyle, then do what we did and add Iwi to your self-care supplements to help support your brain, heart, vision, and overall wellness. 
It's never too late or too early to start taking Ewe. Go to eweelife.com slash moms and use code MOMS22 to save 30% on your first purchase of any Ewe product. Take advantage of this limited time offer today. I-W-I-L-I-F-E dot com slash moms, code MOMS22 for 30% off your first purchase. Ewelife.com slash moms, code MOMS22. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were just getting into our story about the kidnapping and murder of Sally Weiner in Cory, Pennsylvania. Sally's husband, Harry, was a bank manager and a prominent member of the community, which investigators instantly believed was a possible motive in the crime. After a mystery person claiming to be from a U.S. representative's office called Sally to set up a meeting regarding a luncheon for Harry, she was kidnapped from her church parking lot and Harry was sent on an elaborate mission to save her. Sally was found shot dead just two days later, and police have now possibly connected David and Patricia Copenhaver to Harry and Sally Weiner. Now, David was a man who, despite being this regular churchgoer, had been in some trouble with the law in the past. He had a few offenses as a minor, and whenever he was 24, he was acquitted of murder in the case of his new business partner, John Calkins, which we know everyone that is acquitted of murder doesn't mean they are a murderer, but right. that's kind of a dark thing to have on your, hey, I didn't kill this person, but also I didn't kill that person either. Um, right, resume. right. Yeah. It starts looking a little more suspicious when you have another situation pop up where it's it, like, hmm. Yeah. So the details of that case were pretty sketchy, but prosecutors were unable to convince the jury of David's guilt, and he was ultimately found not guilty. David had met John through ITT Technical Institute in Dayton, Ohio, and had set up these interviews with John and three other people in November of 1970 through the Institute's placement office. David said he was looking for a partner for this computer firm that he wanted to start, which great job in the 70s getting set up for a computer firm. You could really get loaded, you know. Yeah, that's I feel like that's where it was at. That if at, you actually could do that at that time, like, yeah, that would have been a really good path to take. Totally. So John had served in the Air Force, and he was engaged at the time of his murder. He was a devout Catholic who had actually been a seminary student at one point in his life. On January 5th, 1971, David paid for seven accidental death policies on John, totaling $550,000 worth of insurance. This is presumably due to the new computer firm they were starting together. Hang on. Melissa? Yeah? Should we take life insurance out on each other? <laughs> Wait, I thought we did. I have seven out on you right now. <laughs> it's a wild thing. I would never think to do that on you. Ever. No. Should no, we, though? I, mean, I don't know. We'll have, let's have this conversation. I don't want to. Time. I don't need to be worth anything. I just feel like the second no, I'm worth any money, I'm out of here. I know. It is, I understand me. why. Yeah. And uh, I understand why people who are going into business or who are in business with each other, um, I understand why you would do that just to protect your own interests, like in the event sure. that something does happen to your business partner. And then like, especially if the business literally depends on both of you, um, sure. you know, where it can't 
cannot go on without the other person. Like there is some, I can see kind of like the reason there, but like, oh my gosh, I feel like the level of trust I would have to have to agree to having a life insurance policy, like that anybody other than my husband yeah. like, was a beneficiary of. <laughs> like it's just, it's just, that's a whole step that is just hard for me to take. I feel like. Let's commit to this. If something happens to one or the other of us, drop the S in moms and just do the show solo and see what happens. Deal. <laughs> Deal. Yeah. That's our insurance. <laughs> Perfect. So back to these insurance policies, David actually made himself the beneficiary to all of the policies except for one, which was a $100,000 policy that would go to John's dad. Apparently, John only knew about two of these policies. He probably knew about the one for his dad, and I'm assuming the one that David had on him, but wow. And now there's five more sitting out there. So three days after the policies were signed, John was found dead in a field off of a rural road. Always immediately suspicious. Three days. There's, I mean, the ink isn't even dry on these things. I feel like I'm suspicious if someone takes out life insurance and then they are dead within a year. That is t- that's suspicious to me. I right? mean, put them in a bubble. Uh, they nothing can happen to you. Yeah, I, I, I. But three days later, it's like, wow, what are the odds of that? That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure it can happen, but oof, I would not want to be the one signing those off. Right. So his car was found nearby. He had been shot nine times in the back of the head, neck, chest, and back after a brutal fight for his life. The bullet wounds to his neck had nearly severed his head, and his face had been run over by a car. Just absolutely horrific. So other than the financial angle, prosecutors really didn't have anything else to tie David to the murder. They alleged that David needed money, so he made up a phony story about starting a computer firm as a cover to find himself a victim that he could take insurance policies out on and then kill. There weren't any witnesses to the murder, though, and no murder weapon or other ballistic evidence was there to even tie David to the crime. So the jury ended up finding him not guilty, which does not mean innocent, but they did say not guilty. So according to David's wife, Patricia... David did collect $50,000 from one of the policies on John, and John's father did get the $100,000 policy for him, but the other five policies weren't actually in effect whenever John died, likely because it hadn't even been processed at that point. They don't have computers. John, they're not making these computers yet, apparently. Yeah, I feel like this is going to take six to eight weeks in 1988. (laughs) At least. (laughs) So who really was this David guy exactly? Well, he was born on July 24th, 1947 in Ohio, and according to most sources, he lived a comfortable upper-middle-class life in Troy, which was a rural town with well-kept homes. David's father was the owner of the local Copenheffer Meatpacking Company, which he started in 1963, but after his passing in 1975, the family sold that business. David's mother was a publicist for a milk marketing group, and she also served as Republican County Chairwoman for several years. David married his wife, Patricia, in late 1969 or early 1970, and later that same year, he managed a campaign in Montgomery County for Roger Cloud, hoping to get a um, state computer repair contract deal if Roger won. In 1979, David and Patricia had a son together, and from 1982 to 1987, the family lived in Greenfield, Ohio, where David was active with the Greenfield Republican Club, and Patricia was active with the Greenfield Area Christian Center, as well as a local food and clothing bank. 
The Copenheffers attended First Presbyterian Church of Greenfield. According to Patricia, David had been a longtime gun enthusiast and had been collecting guns since he was about 16 years old. He also spent two years gunsmithing in Colorado, and as an adult, he reloaded his own ammunition. Between the years of 1981 to 86, David worked as a materials manager at an auto industry supplier, but a costly mistake on David's part led to his termination from that job in July of 1986. From there, he went on to manage a grocery store for a little while, but eventually, by September of 1987, David was unemployed. He was later described as being extremely intelligent, but just a major underachiever. He kind of bounced around jobs a lot, and he just didn't really utilize his full potential. As if the financial burden of David being unemployed wasn't bad enough, also in 1987, the Copenheffer's home caught on fire, causing $71,000 in damage while the family was away on vacation. Evidently, a fluorescent light fixture was left on in David's reloading room in the basement, and this fixture fell and ignited the gunpowder in there. A month later, the family moved to Quarry, Pennsylvania, which was a town that they had actually decided on because their favorite church pastor recently took a job at the First Presbyterian in Quarry. So the Copenheffers had gone to Quarry to visit this pastor numerous times, and they liked what they saw in the area and decided that would be a good place for them to relocate to since their house has burned down. The school system was actually better in Quarry, and in general, they just really liked the town. They were really already unhappy where they were. David had no job, and they didn't want to raise their son in Greenfield anyway. Patricia also liked the low crime rate in Quarry and the small town feeling. Quarry had a population of about 7,500 residents at the time, so it was pretty small. After their move, the Copenheffer family became members of the First Presbyterian Church of Quarry, and as we said before, that's also where Harry and Sally Weiner attended for a short time. David and Patricia also started running Quarry Books and Cards, which was located in the same strip mall. It was actually a collection of around 12 stores called Quarry Plaza, and the bank was also in the same plaza, and then of course there was a few other stores in there as well. So now that we have a little better idea of who David Copenheffer was and how he was connected to Sally Weiner in a way that made him a top suspect in her murder, but really how well did these two families even know each other? According to Patricia, they were really just social acquaintances through the First Presbyterian Church. The Weiners had actually left that church after about eight months, and they started going to Cory Missionary Alliance instead. Patricia said, quote, certain people want a church run their way. Either you leave, you accept, or it changes, end quote. And the Weiners decided that First Presbyterian wasn't really what they wanted in a church. Patricia also said that while she didn't always agree with what Sally had to say and vice versa, there was no anger or animosity towards each other. Outside of their brief church acquaintance, the only other connection between the two families was that they both managed businesses in the same plaza, Henry at the pin bank and David and Patricia at the bookstore. Also, that one small detail about Harry denying the Copenheffers loan applications. As we said before, the investigation into what happened to Sally led authorities to request a list of people denied loans at the Corey Penn Bank, and the Copenheffers were on the list. But when investigators went to talk to David and Patricia, they ended up getting a pretty big break. One of the officers noted that a computer-printed note in the bookstore window had the same symbols that were used in the ransom note. This ended up singling them out as suspects. The symbols were actually asterisk, the asterisk symbol, 
bracketed by greater than and less than signs. I'm kind of wondering what that would have actually meant. Like I can picture it, but is that just like a cool design you could do on your brand new computer in 1980? I, I don't, Melissa, I wasn't even born. Then. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't either in 1980. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. So I just don't really know what the, I don't know what symbols were like back then. We just have emojis now. I don't know what they were doing with asterisks and and greater than and less than science. I couldn't tell you what that meant. That was a different that might as well be a different language to me. The fact that we now call it um hashtag instead of pound sign is still something yeah. I struggle with. <laughs> so you're right, it is a different language. But once investigators started looking into David further, they very quickly found enough evidence to arrest him on kidnapping charges at the very least. While searching some trash thrown out from David's bookstore, investigators found drafts of the ransom note and a hand-drawn map, which were torn into pieces of paper. But investigators could tell that parts of the note were, quote, identical to parts of the ransom note and instructions, end quote, that Harry had found in that blue bag. So David was arrested at his house at 2.30 in the morning on June 20th. He was charged with one count of kidnapping, one count of attempted robbery, and one count of attempted extortion, but he wasn't brought up on murder charges just yet. When he was brought into the station, David waived his Miranda rights and chose to speak with detectives about the charges against him, which is a real genius move. Why do people do that? I don't know. I mean, I do think like in this day and age, I don't quite get it, except there is, okay, I do think there is this thing to be like, I wish we would all learn this, but... I, I didn't do anything, therefore I, you know, I can tell you whatever because I'm not going to incriminate myself. I didn't do anything. But yeah, stop, stop. Ask for a lawyer. I've like already told my kids that, and they're like, "Mom, <laughs> what's wrong with you?" And I say a lot. <laughs> Just get a lawyer. <laughs> Just get an attorney. Exactly. But he spoke openly about where he had been on the evening of June 17th. He actually said that he was at that bookstore by 5:20 p.m through that time that he was arrested. So he was able to give this entire timeline, really. But whenever detectives asked what he was doing on the afternoon of June 17th, which would have been when Sally was kidnapped, David refused to say anything besides that he would prefer not to answer that particular question before consulting with counsel. This is obviously a very suspicious response, and this is why you don't start talking at all, sir. Right, right. So David and Patricia's home and bookstore were both thoroughly searched, and a ton of evidence was obtained. When I say a ton, I mean a ton, and we're going to get into all of it. But one of the biggest pieces of evidence was that they found four additional ransom notes, and they had evidently set up an elaborate scavenger hunt of sorts around the town of Cory. John was supposed to find these hidden notes that contained further instructions, but since David never contacted John again, he had no idea that these other notes even existed at all. Investigators found a map of where all the notes were hidden and tracked them all down, and all these notes had instructions for the delivery of this ransom. Many of the notes threatened violence if the police were involved at all, and one of the notes alleged that the kidnapper was heavily armed with submachine guns, automatic pistols, grenades, and an M16. It read that if there were any cops or any bugging devices deployed, or if John drove over 30 miles per hour, Sally would die. One of the notes indicated that the kidnapper had possibly even killed someone else before. 
On top of finding these additional notes, they were also able to solidify evidence that tied David specifically to the notes. One of the notes was secured by a steel rod that matched a stack of steel rods found under some brush at David's house. Another note was secured with crepe paper that matched a roll found at David's store, and the tear pattern on the roll at the store matched the tear pattern on the paper that was found with the note. Tread marks were found at one of the hiding places as well as near where Sally's body was found, and those treads were a match to David's tires. In the trash can at his home, police found a list of items, including radios, handcuffs, and a tape recorder, as well as several written reminders for himself about things that he needed to do. There was also a list of items used in the kidnapping found in David's wallet. So they are finding so much against him, really just on this preliminary search of his home and his business. And And even with that, I'm like, what are you doing? Like you didn't even make any effort to conceal anything. And Nothing. like he didn't take steps to hide anything that he had going on there. Yeah. It, that's wild. But you know what's interesting to me? That they were able to match those treads to David's tires and the other murder that he was accused of at the beginning of the story. The guy's face was run over and they weren't able to check tires or anything you know what i mean it feels like the police work in this story is so much different than what happened in um the- and, but see that was like over 10 years earlier oh, though. True. that was in okay. 1970 so it's like things but i mean it's hard to imagine that the police like i mean thinking to you know match tire treads like that seems like it would be a very like early primitive method of like we are really work. offending so seems- everyone over the age of 40 today <laughs> I'm so sorry if you were a police officer in 1970. Oh, God. <laughs> oh after this, so are they. <laughs> Other items found in David's house included a gun collection complete with high-powered automatic rifles. Multiple firearms in the house were loaded and ready to fire, including four that were loaded specifically with glazer ammunition. This was a significant thing to note because at the time, glazer ammo was really a relatively new invention. In 1986, two FBI agents were killed in a shootout in Miami, and another five were wounded. As a result, the FBI approved a new standard type of defensive handgun bullet designed to provide a, quote, optimum degree of stopping power, end quote. Glazer ammunition is a jacketed hollow point bullet that's expanded about one and a half times its original diameter and penetrated at least 12 inches in 10% ordnance gelatin, which... Is a sentence I said in one take and don't have a clue what I just read. (laughs) But it looks like that may have been the material that they used to actually test the ammo. And this type of ammo is still used to this day. It's the most trusted by law enforcement and those carrying guns for self-defense. So they also found pants with a speck of flesh on them. And this flesh had pieces of glazer ammo in it. They also found a roll of green duct tape at David's house that matched some tape that was actually found with Sally's body. Investigators also noticed that David's van appeared to have been recently washed. The most damning evidence, as if there can be when you consider all the things that they've already found, actually came from David's computers. David had tried to delete evidence from these computers, but investigators were able to recover it on the hard drives. This is actually one of the first cases where a computer was forensically examined. Uh, At this point, digital forensic tools had been developed by the FBI around 1984, which I'm not going to make any comments because we don't need to make the elderly in this. <laughs> in our list. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but after spending a month 
quote unquote, recreating these files erased from the computers, investigators found three drafts of the script of the phone call that David first made whenever he set up his meeting with Sally. So if you remember, Sally had received a call from someone claiming to be with a representative's office that wanted to honor her husband, Harry, with this luncheon. Well, as it turned out, that was actually David, and the whole thing was a ruse to get Sally to meet him. They also found drafts of the recording that David made Sally read to play for Harry to let him know that she'd been kidnapped. And there were actually six drafts of the original ransom note that were found. Lastly, a 22-point plan for the entire kidnapping scheme was found. According to the plan, David was going to call Sally to set up a meeting to plan the Man of the Year Award, then, quote, cuff, tie, and ready Sally for transport, end quote. He'd then drop off the blue bag and ransom note in the bank parking lot, and later he'd, quote, place call for her to him, end quote. So when David met up with Harry at the last location specified in the notes, he was planning to shoot and kill both Harry and Sally. If this had all gone with this 22-point plan that he had. Yeah. When all was said and done, he'd, quote, crush up used gun, dispose of used clothes, end quote. It's unclear whether or not whenever he hid these other notes around town, why he didn't actually tell Harry about these notes. Like he Gives him the first thing of information, but nothing else. Or why he never follows through with this plan to keep Sally alive until she meets with Harry so he could kill them both since that was actually his plan. But David never confessed in this case, so we'll never actually know. Although it was clear that David had been the one to kidnap and murder Sally, it still wasn't entirely clear what the motive actually was. So authorities continued to investigate the Copenheffers and their background. His wife, Patricia, had her own theories, and she shared them with the media, and um, some of them were kind of funny, actually. So she was not correct about why her husband had been arrested, but she went public and said that she believed that he was just being used as a scapegoat and that it was working because of the circumstantial evidence that pointed towards him. Yeah. So she alleged that the police had run background checks on everybody who worked in the strip mall where the bank was located. And when they found out about David's prior murder charge and acquittal, they just fixated on him and, you know, pretty much assumed that he was the suspect. Right. But the investigators were actually doing their due diligence when it came to considering other possibilities. Patricia and her son, Paul, were both interviewed. Patricia was actually interviewed four times, and then both she and her son gave a hair sample, fingerprints, blood, and a handwriting sample. Authorities also interviewed the pastor that the Copenheffer family followed to Corey when they moved there. His house was searched, and the investigators took out many items, including his computer and paper. Later, though, he was actually cleared as a suspect. Patricia told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that she hadn't been told a whole lot about why David had been arrested. She said that she'd only been told a few things, including that the investigators had found an abduction plan and a map in the garage outside of the bookstore. She said that she didn't think those items were enough to find someone guilty. And she said, quote, this is just an unbelievable farce. Once they have a likely scapegoat, they forget all other leads. It appears to be similar to 1971, end quote. Patricia said, quote, David is not the kind of man to do anything like this. He's kind and generous. He would do anything for anybody. 
He has done a lot of things anonymously to help other people. This is 180 degrees off the mark, end quote. I just picture her being like so just like angry and just like stamping her feet about this. Just like really like he did, you know, not my husband. He did not do this. Yeah. Well, that quote earlier about the church, whenever she was like, either you come to the church and you like it, you leave or you change it and they just left makes me gives me everything I need to know about this lady. Like it just kind of (laughs) made sense. So she also tells the Gazette, quote, from what he told me, he is able to account for his whereabouts, end quote. Between the time that Sally was abducted and the time her body was found, she's claimed that David was either with her, with her son, or on a business trip to Erie. But Patricia said, quote, according to the FBI, he wasn't where he said he was, end quote. So Patricia told the Gazette that on the day of Sally's abduction, which was the 17th, David was in Erie meeting with real estate agents until about 6 p.m., but she couldn't provide any other information. She had no idea of the names of these agents. Then she said David worked at the bookstore until 9 p.m. before going home for the night. The next day, the 18th, David was at home with their son. He was at work, and then he was at a picnic with her. And then the day after that, the 19th, Patricia was with David until 2 p.m. when she went into work, and David stayed with their son until after 5 p.m. when she got home. So keep in mind, the time David got to the bookstore is important because his entire defense basically hinges on this time. Police later found at least one witness that saw David at the bookstore on June 17th, and that was a PennBank employee that worked at the Erie office named David Zimmer. He said that when he heard Sally had been kidnapped, he left the bank's Erie office and drove to Corey, where he arrived at around 6.30 or 7, and he said that David Copenheffer was in the bookstore at this time. The Gazette asked Patricia if the couple were having any financial troubles, and she admitted that money was tight, but said that the business was actually doing better than expected and that it was really starting to take off. She did admit to applying for business loans through Harry Weiner's bank, but said that when they never heard back, they went to another bank and they were able to get approved there. Patricia went and visited David in jail on June 23rd, and this was the first time they'd spoken since his arrest. And she told the newspaper that David was bewildered and questioned why all of this was happening to him. Oh my gosh. I know. I hope you can hear the sarcasm uh, ringing from our voices. So on the same day, Patricia refused to speak with the FBI for a follow-up interview and said that her attorneys advised her not to speak with authorities any longer. And they probably should have advised her of that a little before she started speaking to the Gazette. And we still have more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. So as you know from our Melissa and Mandy weather report at the beginning of this episode, this week it's been so nice here, but in some parts of the country, you guys had actual snow, which is wild because it's almost May. So whether you're in fake spring and still having snow days or sweating in pre-summer like us, check out Faraday for all of your clothing needs. Faraday is a family-run brand whose mission is to make high-quality and timeless clothes with both modern design and functionality and who make the perfect clothing for all the seasons. Faraday is all about quality and comfort. Take my Legend sweater shirt, for example. It was a staple in my wardrobe all winter long, and it's still the first thing I reach for now in the spring when I just want to throw something soft and cozy over my arms. The Legend sweater shirt is more than just your average flannel. It's perfect for layering and has that soft, lived-in look and feel that just makes you feel right at home. And the more I wash mine, the more I love it. 
This is a piece of clothing I can picture having in my closet for 20 years and still saying that it's my favorite shirt. And one thing I really, really love is their lifetime guarantee of quality. Literally from here until forever, they will replace or fix your clothes forever, no matter what which really takes the stress of saving clothes for special occasions out of the equation. I can wear my Faherty clothes with confidence that they always have my back and I can look great in the process. Head to faherdybrand.com slash momsandmurder and use code momsandmurder at checkout to snag 20% off all your new spring staples. That's code momsandmurder at faherty, F-A-H-E-R-T-Y, brand.com slash momsandmurder for 20% off. faherdybrand.com slash momsandmurder. Hair care is not one size fits all. That's why when it comes to choosing something to use to take care of my hair, I wanted to use something that was made just for me. And that's why I chose Function of Beauty. My hair can be really annoying. It's really dry in the winter and oily in the summer and has absolutely zero body. And while I found things that may add volume, they've just ended up making my hair even more oily because it's really only addressing that one problem when it comes to my hair. And I have 99 problems and oiliness is definitely one. But thanks to Function of Beauty's quick hair quiz, I was able to answer simple questions and have a shampoo and conditioner created that was just for me and covered all my hair needs and wants. Function of Beauty is the world's first fully customizable hair care that creates individually filled shampoos, conditioners, and styling and treatment products that are specifically based on your hair now and where you want it to go. What I really love is knowing that out of over 54 trillion possible formulations, my formulation was made just for me. My special formula is exactly what I need, and somehow they've still managed to make it the best-smelling shampoo and conditioner ever. There's lots of scent options, but I chose their pear scent. But there's other fragrances that I can't wait to try as well. And don't worry, if fragrance isn't for you, they also offer their products fragrance and dye free. After I placed my order, my product came right to my door, and it's been a game-changer for my hair since the day I got it. Say goodbye to generic hair care for good today. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms to take your hair goals quiz and you'll save 25% on your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms to let them know you heard about it from our show and to get 25% off your first order. That's functionofbeauty.com slash moms to take your hair quiz and save 25% on your first order. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. 
I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. Okay, so before the break, we have covered a lot. <laughs> we covered a lot before the break. <laughs> um, we're talking about this kidnapping and murder of Sally Weiner. And we have gotten into David Copenheffer, his wife Patricia, what their involvement was with Sally and her husband Harry. And all of this is just really crazy. There's a ton of evidence against David, and it's pretty clear to anybody, really anyone at all, that he is definitely guilty of this crime. But his wife Patricia is very surprised and is insisting that he is not this type of person who would ever do something like this. And to be honest, she wasn't the only one that was really shocked. There were many others who were equally as surprised by David's arrest. Friends and coworkers always knew David as a family man who even showed up late to work on Saturdays sometimes because he was so busy watching cartoons with his kids. Also, I just want to say that may have been what he told his job, but that was not the reason that he was late on Saturday morning. Watching cartoons with his kids? I was like, I'm sorry, am I supposed to celebrate you for that one? Right. Very 80s. Right. So one of the members of his church, though, also said that David was really outgoing and really friendly, and he had a very positive outlook and was always willing to give advice. Coworkers couldn't believe that he'd been accused of such a violent crime, saying that he was such a clean-cut guy and a family man. It was just so hard for them to understand that he had been accused of this. Others, though, they weren't so shocked to hear about the arrest. Apparently, not everybody saw David in the same light, and some of his relatives actually considered him to be the family embarrassment, which, yikes. Yeah. If you don't know who the embarrassment of your family is... <laughs> I was just wondering who mine was, and now I know. (laughs) (laughs) So David's uncle um, actually is the one who revealed that much of David's family had disowned him after he was acquitted of murder the first time in 1971. Apparently, they also thought that the details of that case were a little sketchy. So another relative also said that nobody in the family really wanted anything to do with David, and nobody kept in contact with him, which is sad, but also I understand for the family's sake where they're coming from. On July 19th, David was charged with murder, terroristic threats, and unlawful restraint, and he now faced the death penalty. Authorities said that they waited so long to charge David with murder because they wanted to be sure that, you know, they had everything together. They wanted to make sure they had all the evidence that was possible and that they were going to have a successful case to present to a jury. I don't think they really had a lot to worry about because there was just so much there. Totally. Um, But at the same time, he's been acquitted before. So I can see where the fear would be there. Yeah. 
But they also said that there was no real hurry to charge him with murder because at this point he was already in jail for the other charges anyway. And it took forever for them to run all the forensic testing on the evidence that they did collect. So you can kind of understand, you know, why it took a little bit of time to get it to a courtroom. Right. At the preliminary hearing, David's attorney said that the murder charges should be dropped and that if he was tried for anything, it should just be for kidnapping. The attorney said, quote, there is nothing to lead this court to believe the person who kidnapped Sally was the same person who pulled the trigger to kill Sally. Which, nothing uh, at all. There, there's, I can't imagine why anyone would have thought that. But in response, the prosecutor said that the defense's request was based on, quote, a ludicrous assumption that Sally somehow escaped from her kidnappers and then ran into somebody else, of course, who was her murderer, which, yeah, that definitely did not happen. What are the odds that you're kidnapped on the same, you know, the same night that you run into somebody else later who kills you? Like that's Ben Affleck hasn't even been in a movie about that. Like it's just right, not that possible. isn't even in a movie. Yeah, exactly. That's just crazy. Of course, the judge agreed with the state, and on September twenty second, nineteen eighty eight, David was charged with two counts each of criminal solicitation to commit murder and criminal conspiracy to commit murder. These charges actually didn't have anything to do with Sally's murder, though. While he was in jail, David actually asked two inmates to have Harry and an FBI agent, uh, one of the chief investigators of Sally's case, killed. The two inmates that he asked about this or talked to about this, rather, went straight to the authorities in August, which good on them. But can you imagine being this guy's attorney and being like, OK, you've been acquitted of murder before. Now you're being charged. Oh my gosh, why did you try to get two more people killed? <laughs> like, right. What is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, a, a lot, a lot. On October 17th, 1988, David's wife Patricia was arrested on charges of trying to intimidate a witness in what goes down as one of the most wild things I've ever heard in my entire life. So she actually placed two threatening advertisements in eerie newspapers using a fake name, address, and telephone number. When investigators showed an employee at the publishing company a lineup of photos, she was able to pick Patricia out as a person who placed these ads. And these ads were coded threats against a prosecution witness and his family. So this prosecution witness was named Daniel Verasco, who was one of the two inmates who David tried to hire to kill Harry and the FBI agent. So the first ad's published on October 5th, and it's addressed to Cecil and was signed, Your Aunt. So Cecil was Verasco's nickname, and Patricia was known to Verasco as Aunt Pat. So to why? Cecil, from why? Aunt why? I I'm so confused by all of this. <laughs> I know it gets wilder. And so the full ad said, "Quote Cecil, all caps. We know you are between a rock and a hard place. They forced you to go along and tempted you with a great prize. Now, if you turn on sunshine and tell the truth, you're afraid they will back out and hurt you. But do not fear." The man in charge will not let them, exclamation point. Let's stick together and we will all win. Signed, your aunt. What? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it's like so coded it doesn't make sense because I don't think it's coded, but like it's just right. so wild that I'm like, what? Sunshine? What are we talking about? Right. <laughs> it's too much. Second ad. This one was published on October 12th and was addressed to Grasshopper, which was also one of Verasco's nicknames. Who has this many nicknames? So this is to Grasshopper. The full ad said, Grasshopper, all capital letters. Do, did you a favor with the kids? Agree to meet with the representative. We're counting on you. I don't know what any of this means. Why? Are, why? 
Why? Why? Why are you taking out ads? I know. I. I feel like this is one of the most ineffective ways to to reach someone. A hundred percent. What if the person in jail is like, I am so sick of reading the newspaper. Right. Fine. But everyone else in the world, every detective, they're all reading it. So everybody else can read right. it. Yeah. <laughs> this is like instead of like sending a note to somebody, like just making a billboard. It just, you know, right. whatever your secrets are. Wild. So anyway, according to Verasco, he also got two greeting cards, which included similar messages. Okay. But at this point, the Copenhagen's bookstore had closed and Patricia's unemployed and she's trying to sell the family home, probably after paying for all these freaking ads to be put in the paper. And later on September 12th, 1989, a jury actually found Patricia guilty of a misdemeanor instead of a felony. She admitted at trial that she did place the ads, but they weren't meant to be intimidating as if you're going to write... Like, how would you be writing Grasshopper a kind note? It doesn't make any sense. Right. (laughs) So on November 3rd, Patricia is sentenced to the maximum, which is one to two years in prison. And she was given a $500 fine plus prosecution costs. With both parents in jail, the Copenhagen's son, who was about nine or 10 at this age, went to stay with relatives in Ohio, which is sad, but like maybe for the best. Yeah, for sure. In December of 1988, David requested to speak privately with a district attorney regarding fellow inmates' discussions of criminal activity and demonstrations of criminal techniques. Basically, he wants to snitch on people for talking about how to commit crimes inside of jail, like they're teaching each other how to hotwire cars and do other crimes that you learn in jail. I feel like those are jail rites of passage, and he wants to tell on them. I don't know that I would go that far, but... (laughs) I see that was what you're very saying. Very obviously a joke, but you know what I'm saying, though. 100%. So, but I feel like whenever you, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? Like, just keep your mouth shut. You just need to stay out of trouble, He's is in my a, opinion. Like a, a little balloon um, <laughs> and throwing <Yeah>. darts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, he wanted to have a meeting where he could just tattle on a bunch of people in jail. On December the – which also, by the way, I feel like is not wise because if you're going to be in jail like with people, you don't want to be known as the guy who tells. No, and you don't want to be already known as the guy whose wife will put out a you know full-page ad using right. the most embarrassing <laughs> nicknames ever to try to communicate with you. Right. Yeah. It's just – none of that makes any sense. Um, so on December 16th, David met with the assistant district attorney and Erie County detective Mark Watts. He said that he did not have his defense attorney present at this meeting. So David told them, you know, about all these people and what they were talking about in jail. And then the DA asked David whether or not he had ever discussed criminal activity or demonstrated any criminal techniques like the people that he was tattling on. And David actually said, yes, that he had. He said that um, some inmates had been discussing Bobby Kennedy's assassination and these inmates wondered – how Kennedy lived so long after being shot in the head. I guess these are just jailhouse conversations. Okay. David told them, and this is actually relevant. The reason I'm bringing it up is because this is relevant to um, Sally's murder. But David allegedly told them, quote, the way to do it is to make sure that when you make the shot that the medulla is not severed, that would cause the person to linger on, end quote. And David then placed his hand on the back of the detective's head to demonstrate how the shot should be made basically to make that happen. And this, of course, was very interesting considering that the one pathologist had testified that Sally could have possibly been shot in a way where she was left alive for a period of time before she died. So it was very, you know, with 
David saying that to other inmates, it was kind of like, huh. How do you have that information? Right, exactly. So later on um, at trial, these statements were introduced as evidence. Jury selection for David's trial began on February 27th, 1989 in Pittsburgh. They had a change of venue in the case due to all of the pretrial publicity. Once the jury was chosen, they were also sequestered. On March the 3rd, opening statements began. Prosecutors theorized that on June 17th, David kidnapped Sally at around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Based on a combination of the pathologist and the entomologist determinations and David's 22-point plan for the kidnapping and murder, David had Sally tape the recording before he shot her sometime that afternoon, and then she lingered in a coma before dying between 5 and 8 p.m., David then put the blue bag at the bank and called Harry to play the recording. But Sally was already dead before Harry even had a chance to complete all of the ransom notes directions. Mm -hmm. Just to cover their bases, the prosecution said that even if Sally hadn't lingered on in a coma and if she had died right away, David could have shot her at around 5 o'clock p.m. and then driven to the bookstore in time to be there at around 5.20. Luckily... The state didn't have to prove a time of death. All they had to prove was that David was the one who murdered her. David's attorneys presented two different defenses. He had an alibi for when Sally was killed, and there was little evidence really to link David to Sally's murder. Anything that could link him, they said, could be explained away by David's, quote, ignorance and some unfortunate circumstances. I don't know how you explain away any of the evidence because like this part to me is like mind-blowing because I'm like, what are they talking about? There was right. a ton of evidence. Tons. Like how how can they actually get up there straight faced and say there's no evidence tying him to this crime? Like, are we listening to the same story here? Because that's like like what are you guys talking about? There's a ton of evidence yeah. that is directly linking him to this totally. crime. So the defense also said that the evidence um that investigators found on David's computers could have been placed there by someone using special equipment like to take over his computer and telephone in and I don't really know what they were getting at there, but they were just, I guess saying hackers could have done this. We don't know. It's, <laughs> we don't know. It's the eighties. We really don't know we what don't you guys know. were doing. I'm, yeah. I'm a baby. I'm practically a newborn. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the defense's case pretty much hinged on Sally's time of death. And they said that based on the state's timeline, David couldn't be guilty because he had this alibi. You know, he was back at the bookstore as of 520 on June 17th. And that means he couldn't have shot and killed Sally at five o'clock PM, which no, it doesn't. He could still have shot her. And I mean, those that still doesn't make, it still doesn't make any sense. I feel like they're still reaching for things and they're just saying things that are nonsensical. (laughs) Right. You know, like, like how does it not make sense that he could kill someone and then be somewhere else in the small town 20 minutes later? Right. Like, he absolutely could have, you know. They said that someone else could have planned the kidnapping and committed the murder. Another person that they thought they should look into was Sally's husband, Harry. Uh, because, you know, he had gotten engaged to a new woman at Christmas time, and maybe that was a little too soon to move on, and maybe that made him suspicious. So the defense said that maybe Harry plotted to kill Sally and then framed David by putting the evidence into his computer. What? Oh, my gosh. Just so much ridiculousness. Harry later told the Associated Press that he was very upset by the defense's claims that he had anything to do with Sally's death, but that he could live with those sorts of attacks just as long as justice was served in the end. Poor guy. 
So David took the stand and testified that he had nothing to do with Sally's kidnapping or murder and said that none of the stuff found on his computer was his. And the reason his fingerprints were found on some of the notes was because he found the blue bag in the bank parking lot before Harry. And he, Mandy, followed part of the trail of clues on his own, reading the notes as he went along. Wow. What a good And just guy. never thought to call the police at any point during that. It said don't call the police, but definitely also don't <laughs> to- tell Harry. Like, why would – this isn't a scavenger hunt. Why wouldn't you right. tell the person this is about – uh, why are we trying to make sense of this? So he said he also he also drew a rough map of the areas as he went and roughly copied some of the instructions he found. And of course, he did all this because he wanted to help his dear friend, Harry. Oh, my gosh. You know, this just reminds me how he said, the you know, that um, none of the stuff that was found on his computer was his. You know, it's like when – when people get in trouble, you know, if they get caught with something they're not supposed to have, and they're like, oh, that's not mine. You know, that's like a classic thing people like to say to the police, like, oh, it's not mine. That is so weird because it's like, how are you going to say, like, that you're, the contents of your own computer are not yours? Like, obviously they are. Who are you kidding? <laughs> in the words of Shaggy, it wasn't me. And that was his right. entire defense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So on March 21st, after six hours of deliberation, the jury found David guilty on all charges. And so during the penalty phase, the jury had to decide between a life or death sentence. The prosecution told the jury about the aggravating circumstances in the case, such as Sally being taken hostage and held for ransom before being killed during the commission of a felony, of course, the felony being kidnapping itself. And they also talked to the jury about the mitigating circumstances, of which there were many. The first was David had no criminal history. He helped his parents with their meat business, which, okay. He had a great relationship with his wife and son who both testified for him. He never physically abused his wife, quote, the value of his life to his family, end quote, as well as how important religion was to him. He was active in his church and community. He didn't abuse drugs or alcohol, quote, his intelligence and ability to assist other inmates, end quote. And also, kudos to him, he had good behavior during the trial. Give him a cookie. Wow. Yeah. Side note, the defense had David undergo a psych evaluation, which determined he had paranoia and antisocial personality disorder. In the end, as a strategic decision, the defense did not introduce this evidence. So on March 22nd, after deliberating for four and a half hours, the jury determined that David should receive the death penalty. The jury had found two aggravating circumstances, one that Sally was held for ransom or reward, and two that David committed the murder while committing another felony, again, which was kidnapping, and they found uh, no mitigating circumstances. On May 3rd, David was sentenced to die in the electric chair for murder. He was given between 20 and 40 years for the other convictions. The charges against David for soliciting the two inmates to kill Harry and the FBI agent were dropped since David had been sentenced to death. I don't know if I'd feel better if I was Harry or the FBI agent that they just right. dropped those, but okay. Yeah. So naturally, David appealed his conviction on multiple grounds, but the funniest one of all was that he tried to claim that the detectives illegally intruded on his right to privacy when they went through his computer and found documents that he thought he had deleted. So rude. Right. On March 18, 1991, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania affirmed David's death sentence. Next, David filed for post-conviction relief, and he had many more wild claims to go along with. For one, he said that his defense was ineffective because they didn't file a motion to exclude evidence found at his home and store. Okay, yes, you heard that right. 
He was upset because his defense did not file a motion to exclude the evidence found at his home in his store. And he said, quote, virtually all the evidence taken from those places bore no reasonable relevance to this case. What? It's like all of our – it makes it sound like all of our computers came pre-programmed with a 22-point plan to kidnap and kill somebody because there's no other reason anyone would have it. Why you would have that. Yeah, exactly. And then just coincidentally, that's exactly what happened in the case. You you had a blueprint for this exact crime, like – and it just so happened that it had nothing to do with you. Like, no, that's just crazy talk. So David said that when he actually made that December uh, 1988 meeting with the DA where he told them about, you know, how these inmates had been talking about the ways to commit crimes, he made the condition that no questions be asked in regards to the murder, kidnapping, you know, all the charges against him. So when the DA asked if he'd ever done anything like the things he was explaining, he said that he was really tricked and bamboozled into making a statement that was relevant to the murder charges. And because of that, his statement never should have been allowed in court. You, how do you get tricked into saying, hey, if you shoot somebody a certain way, they might not die right away? Like, no one tricked you into saying that specific thing. And honest to goodness, they had so much other evidence. Okay, throw that piece out. Like, as right. a juror, I don't think that would do that much for me. No. I, it's, yeah. it's more of the same, really. Everything else, yeah. yeah. So David's petition for relief was denied on June 30th, 1997. Later, David filed another petition for relief stating his conviction and sentence should be overthrown because of a technicality during the penalty phase. The district court denied him relief based on his conviction, but vacated his death sentence based on the technicality. Unhappy that the court didn't completely overturn his conviction, Dave appealed the entire decision, which I think people have so much nerve when they go through this process because you are really playing with fire. If you get lucky enough to have your death penalty kind of put, you know, under the table for a minute. Like, just calm down. Right. Don't try to go. This is not a go big or go home situation. This is just a, like. Which way do you want to go home? And right. both of them end with you dying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the Court of Appeals uh, looked over David and the state's appeals, and they ended up siding with the state, of course. The court reinstated David's death sentence on September 27th, 2012. And as I said, this is why you should not push your luck because he got his death sentence reinstated. Right. David may have continued to file petitions. We're not really sure whether or not he exhausted all of his appeals, but he didn't get the chance to take it as far as he possibly could have because he died from natural causes on January 20th, 2013. He was 65, and he had been living at the state prison in Greene County. Truly one of the more wild stories I feel like we've talked about. Yeah. What yeah, definitely. I just think it's wild because of all the evidence they had, but then just like the complete denial of having anything to do with it, despite the glaring evidence saying that you did do it. But like, that's just <laughs> it's like ga- a gaslighting defense because it does not the idea that someone could have kidnapped her and someone else could have murdered her when they right. let her go. F- what? What? Yeah. Yeah. Just to even think of that happening to someone, that somebody would be in this horrific situation to be kidnapped and then to escape only to run into another bad guy the same day. Like, no one has that kind of luck. That's absolutely too much. But man, super sad. I mean, 
And just the idea, like, I do wonder the thing we don't have answers to because he didn't confess is why did he kill her when he killed her? Why didn't he wait to kill? Not that I want both of them dead. That's not the that I want either. I don't understand too. Why did he? What went wrong there? Right. It does make you wonder what went wrong there. It does make me wonder if something went, but the other thing, cause I was thinking, well, maybe Sally put up a fight or, you know, kind right. of tried to escape or tried to get away, but where she was found, you know, in a field and she had only been shot one time and she didn't have any other marks and bruises on right. her. So it doesn't sound like there was a physical um, altercation between her and David at any point. It sounds like he just took her into a field and and shot her execution style. And, yeah. it, and it does make you wonder, like, why did he do that? Because he obviously had taken the time to write six copies of the draft of this ransom note and set up all this crazy stuff. And so what changed his mind yeah. and made him, you know, made him kill her instead? That I, But also I it could understand. have been more um, more, sorry, I'm overthinking this, but it could have been more revenge than anything else against Harry because he's not even asking for a specific amount of money. You know, that is so weird to me to do something that would just ultimately hurt Harry. Like if he kills Harry, right. it's over. But if he kills his wife, he has to deal with that forever. I don't know. I'm overthinking this, but that was a very, that's a story I've never heard of. Um, Haley, who helps us research, did a great job pulling all that information. There's a ton of like very old information she had to go very 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 old we're talking about the 70s and the early 80s which we were not yes. alive for <laughs> the you, sources <laughs> um the list of sources on this episode is literally like two pages long yeah so there's like there was so much information and yeah i hope we covered it all <laughs> yeah no kidding Okay, so we're going to move on to our last thing before we go. This has been another long episode for us. We've been having some long episodes yeah, this year. Yeah, they've been good though. Um, yeah. So we'll move on to last thing before we go. We're going to do something just just a little laid back and easygoing. There's been some silly and very bizarre things in the news lately that are not if you haven't noticed scary or murder. <laughs> yeah, that are you know just kind of interesting. So we're going to kind of talk about some of the. We're just going to go through and just say a couple of the like interesting, funny ones that we found. So. Um, do you want me to go first, Melissa? Sure. So the first one that I have seen a couple times this week, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it because I've seen it at lots of places, is a story about the man who inhaled a drill bit during a dental visit. We should have started this with a disclaimer. Some people yeah. really hate the dentist. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry if that's you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this guy was getting his tooth filled and then he was just informed. They just told him like, hey, you inhaled a tool. Apparently he um, inhaled and then he was like going to cough and he just <gasps> – inhaled this thing that they had in his mouth and he said he didn't even feel it going down but he ended up having to undergo surgery because it was for sure lodged in his lung oh oh yes my gosh he's fine he recovered from the surgery and all is well but they had to use like a special thing to get it out because it was actually deep like lodged in there and they had to figure out how to get it out safely without like damaging his lung and <gasps> and um causing more problems but he is okay but um Oh my gosh! Yeah, if you're already scared of the dentist, just add that to your list of reasons to not like to not want to go. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Ugh. Okay, mine is um, Mike Tyson, who was actually in the news for kicking somebody's butt on an airplane this week. That's not my yes. story. I saw. Oh, oh, there's another Mike another Tyson. Mike Tyson story. Um, his is uh, Mike Tyson is not able to sell ear shaped cannabis gummies in Colorado. <laughs> 
<laughs> because you can't sell marijuana ed- edibles that are shaped like humans, animals, fruit, or other things that could attract children, which is a good call. That that makes a lot of sense. For sure. Yeah. But I do, I'm like, that was actually not bad marketing on his part. So right. maybe the now fact he could that do he an thought airplane. of it. Mm-hmm. Right. The fact that he wanted to, he should try another state. Maybe they'll let him get away. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so this one is not very um, – this one isn't really that crazy. It's just a PSA for everyone. Taco Bell is bringing back Mexican pizza. I'm thrilled. <laughs> I saw that and I was like, oh, that's not really a news story. I mean it it is, but it, it isn't, but it is. <laughs> I asked my daughter to help me like look for a few things and she was – that was one that she gave me and she's like, Doja Cat did that. So I guess – this nice you know, thank you doja yeah there you go thank you <laughs> um let's see um uh, my next one is oh this one's terrible a woman accidentally drops her cell phone into the hole of a pit toilet and she like puts um a dog uh leash down there all different things to try Ew. to get it out no doesn't I'm work sorry. Throw the she whole phone falls away. in head first into this absolutely pit. not she was alone she tries to get out for like 15 minutes no when she finally no. finds her phone she calls 911 they come get her they have to like use this harness to get her but my favorite line is this because tell me you can't understand this she was washed down and quote strongly encouraged to seek medical attention after being exposed to human waste but she only wanted to leave <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I get that because you'd be like, I, I just whatever I have now, I have. I cannot tell another person this happened to me. That is, I have horrific. to get out of here right away. Oh my gosh, no, that's awful. That's absolutely terrible. Terrible. Oh my, it gosh. did okay. make me laugh a lot, though. Sorry, lady. Okay, so we have talked before about how terrifying it is to have a bear encounter. Yes. Um, you have talked about how you used to have see bears quite a bit at your old house. Mm-hmm. Even when I was when I would go over to your old house, I would get scared sometimes because I would Oh yeah, at night. Nighttime. I would like come outside would, to help you come inside cuz Yeah, because I, I would <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, I'm scared of bears. When I go hiking and stuff too, that's like always what I'm thinking of. I always have like it sounds stupid, but I always have like music playing on my phone or something so that I'm I have noise. Right. You know, I don't ever want to sneak up on a wild mm-hmm. animal. It's terrifying. So this is a story, thankfully not from Florida. This is from California, about a homeowner who discovered that there were five bears living under her house. <gasps> For the entire winter, she was hearing rumbling under her house all winter long. And then now that it's spring, um, she suddenly just started hearing this like unmistakable rumbling of a bear and realized that there was a bear under her house. She called this uh, specialty company that, you know, come out and help get the bear out and get the bear out into the wild. And they ended up finding out that the bear actually had three cubs of her own and at some point had adopted a fourth cub. And so all of these bears were living under her house and were waking up from their winter hibernation. And uh, they were all safely released into the wild. But yes, this lady found out that she had five bears under her house for months and she did not know it until the spring. (laughs) (laughs) That's like supersized Goldilocks. That is too much for me. Oh my gosh, that stresses me out. Here's my last one. This is... This is great. And I spent way too much time on this page. Ecology professor theorizes that Loch Ness Monster may just be a whale's member. No. So the idea (laughs) – and I saw pictures, a lot of pictures – that the idea is that Nessie, 
the Loch Ness Monster is actually just a whale with his member released in the ocean. And if you see pictures of this, when the whales are just kind of swimming around doing their thing in the air for whatever reason, it looks exactly like Loch Ness. Uh, Okay, but this is exactly the kind of conspiracy theory that I love and to go down. So I'm going to be all night now looking at pictures. Don't Google whale. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. But there, (laughs) there is this one line. I'm I'm not going to use the word the guy used, but said um, that while many observers believe the appendages breaking the ocean surface might be part of something more sinister lurking beneath, (laughs) Sweet said that in many cases. In many cases, it was just whale blanks. <laughs> Wait, so they're just like swimming and they just only are sticking that part so out? some are mating. I guess they mate in like pods or something. And so whenever one of them's like, hey, I'm here, <laughs> they're just like waving out of the ocean. Okay. And from a distance, it looks like um, a Loch Ness a monster. monster. <laughs> I love that for like – hundreds of years this has been a theory and it's like no those are just whales penises (laughs) oh my gosh that's hilarious okay the last one i have first of all i found several i guess guinness book of world records people are just breaking them all the time random ones you know and i just don't even understand why some things are records so the first one that i found that i had first put in here as my fact um was that somebody recently set the world record for stacking the most amount of m&ms on each other without them falling over Hmm. how many do you think it was 320. Oh my gosh, no. It was seven. Oh, okay. See, I was going to guess eight, but I was like, no, if she asked, that means it's a bigger one. Yeah, I know. So seven M&Ms was that. And then I was like, okay, that was kind of a boring whatever headline. Well, then I I found another one and I was definitely more um, appalled at this one. So this is a world record for a man. (laughs) Uh, No, it's almost just as bad though. Um, a man in Michigan won the world record for having the biggest tongue circumference. Oh, circumference? His yes. <gasps> His tongue is 4.8 inches around. Oh, and if you're listening, tell me you did not just take your tongue out and put your fingers around it because I oh definitely did. What? <laughs> yeah. That's a growth. How does that even happen? How do you breathe? How do you talk? How do you do anything? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That is upsetting information. This was a very upsetting lesson. Well, it's like it reminds me of when you sometimes when we sit down to record and we're recording and you're like, wait, like my tongue feels like it's taking up my entire mouth and like I can't deal with it. Like imagine if you're that person. It actually is. What if I have a four inch round circumference tongue? Get out the the tape. You need to see if you can beat this guy's world record. Honest to God, if mine was bigger, I would not try to claim his record. I'd be like, he can just... (laughs) I don't want to be that guy and I don't want to be toilet lady. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. But 4.8 inches around, that's... That's a tumor. I don't think that's that's normal. quite a tongue. (laughs) I'd be afraid of all the things you could get it stuck in, like a Coke can. Imagine if you try to drink something. I mean... Oh, man. Okay. okay. It's late. Okay. Congratulations to you, Michigan man with the biggest tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Please, can we stop talking about him? <laughs> Let's just move on. 
A uh, new episode of Criminality out now. It's on uh, Apollo Nita, who is the husband of Phaedra Parks on Real Housewives of Atlanta. It's the first Housewives episode I did, and I'm so excited about it. So if you want to check that out, Criminality um, show. Okay, Mandy, I'm good. Okay. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Same time, same place. News story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.